we're doing a series called Acts Reenacted, for those who are, are sort of new to what we're doing here at the moment. And Acts Reenacted is about the idea that the book of Acts launched in, say, 27 AD, 28 AD, whatever you want to sort of follow the history line there, and continues today. What started there with Pentecost and what happened was initiated called a church age, and that actually hasn't stopped yet. Uh, today we still celebrate what has gone on since that time and that will not end until the second coming of Christ when he returns to collect his own and uh, in the meantime we uh, you know there's no you know, there's no stopping that what has happened in Acts what was initiated in Acts should be continued in the church today now last week we looked at what I called the mindset of mission and our inspiration was the beginnings of Paul's second missionary journey at the end of that passage, we saw in that message we saw that to be effective in our own personal mission field, and we all have a personal mission field. To be effective in that setting, we need to have the right heart, which was to go. We have the right cultural attitude, in other words, cut off things that might be, you know, a little bit too much of churchy and a little bit more aware of what the of the environment we're stepping into. And we have to be in the right God ordained place. You know what, if you're working and you've got some un- unchurched um, machine operators next to you or office staff or whatever, you're in the right place. That's your mission field. You know, if you're stuck at a classroom, you know, if you're stuck in a, a uni thing or any setting like that, that's your right place. So, uh, you know, you're, that's part, you're one third of the way already there. Now, as we keep going on through Acts 16 and beyond, we see that once those things got in order, some great things happened. And we're going to start reading about some of those things today. We ended last week with Paul and Silas sitting in the port city of Troas. And uh, we're going to pick up in chapter 16, verses 11 to 15. We're going to start picking up the story and keep going through here. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day, we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message, and when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house, and she persuaded us. Better stop there for a minute. Paul and Silas have begun this bit. They've just received a, a vision. Paul's received in a dream or whatever it was of a man from Macedonia saying, come and help us, come and minister to me. And so they've begun by chartering a boat bound for the other side of the Aegean Sea. But not without a stopover in the island of Sa- the city of Samothrace, which is Poseidon's island. Uh, this is, um, you know, there's a rocky mountain peak on there. It'll come up on the next picture. It's uh, Mount Fingari. It actually so that's about sixteen hundred meters above sea level. So it's just this is kind of a similar view to what you see going down the Hume and you see Buffalo across the valley there. And so it's about the same. There, um, Buffalo is only a little bit taller than uh, than what we've got here. The next stop is the mainland port of Neapolis or modern day Kavala, and then there's a sixteen k walk to Philippi. So Neapolis was Fremantle to Western Australia's Perth, uh, or it was Footscray to Melbourne so that's it's a port city of the of that region there Philippi was a strategic city in the Roman Empire with a very rich history it was transformed from a backwater village to a major Macedonian city 
in 356 BC. And uh, that was founded by Philip of Macedon. Now, Philip of Macedon was the father of Alexander the Great. So we've got that sort of era happening there. In that time, it had become a very prosperous city with a very strong agricultural industry because of the richness, richness of the land that was around it. And they mined gold and silver in the mountains there. And uh, the mines have been going for several centuries by this stage and were still pulling out good stuff. Philippi was also home to a prestigious medical school with worldwide renown. And it's believed that Luke was actually at one stage a, a, a resident of Philippi, but also a graduate of this particular school. As major a city as Philippi was on the world scene, it didn't have a Jewish synagogue. Their travels in verse 13 here to a river gives us a lot of insight into that situation. When synagogues were present, but Jews were a little bit, it wasn't uncommon for a place of prayer to be set up near a clean waterway. And uh, this allowed for ceremonial washing and purification and minimal commute from the cleansing place to the prayer place. They would often have little enclosures and little spots designated as a Jewish prayer area. As Paul approaches, he sees just women gathered there. It actually took 10 faithful, regular Jewish men to make a synagogue worth building in any region. So this gives us some insight here. Philippi was pretty much an entirely Gentile pagan city with very minimal God-worshipping presence here. This makes it a very interesting mission field for one of Judaism's most devout followers in, in Paul. But God had ordained Paul to be there. We've got one of the most godly people now having to set foot in one of the most godless places that he'd been to at this point. Like you and I do every day of our life. As Paul engages with his new ordained mission field, we see a wide range of people and the needs they will have. I will say this, I'm highlighting these needs because these needs are still alive and well today. We're also going to see some responses that came his way. Again, I'm highlighting those because those responses in our mission field are going to occur as well. So we've got people types and we have responses that have been um, outlined as Luke talks about the ministry in the region of Macedonia. We'll start with the people and their needs. The first missional encounter we read about is at the Gangites River. And we talk about a businesswoman named Lydia. She's a foreigner to these parts. She came across the pond you know, the, the, the uh, Asia Minor Pond. It wasn't the British Canal, it was the English Channel, it was the other one. Yeah, you know, she came from Asia Minor. The fabric she sold actually came from her hometown of Thyatira. They had a special clay in that area and they were able to produce this purple linen cloth that was highly sought after. And Lydia was a very successful businesswoman as a result. It was highly sought after stuff. We also know that she's described as merely a God worshipper. She's not Jewish. She's a Gentile who thinks the God of Israel seems to make the most sense. She's not too dissimilar to those around us today who feel they're on the outside looking in with this whole God thing. She would no doubt be grappling with the whole idea of what makes the God of Israel stand out among all the other options. And in much the same way as many people out there are still considering the claims of Jesus the same way. To minister to her... Paul had to first address where she was at intellectually. He was able to provide a voice of clarity and was able to merge with the thinking process she was already on. 
Then as she mulls, as, it's as she mulls this over that God does the rest. The text says that God opened her heart to the message. Paul could not, uh, could not manufacture the God bit here. He could only act in faith and meet her where she was at in her experience and thought process and then journey with her through it. That's the sort of thing we do with the Alpha program. That's actually the purpose of it. We allow people to come in at whatever point they are at and we continue the conversation and then we leave the rest to God. That's how the program works. Sometimes our mission field simply requires us to find people like Lydia and have some, um, basically have some helpful insight to offer them and be able to offer it over an extended period of time and keep praying for them as they digest it for themselves. There are some people in our mission field who simply need to be reached at an intellectual level and be able to allow that time to, uh, to uh, take hold in their heart. The next portion picks up on two other significant Christ encounters here and uh, two more to be had before Paul is done with Philippi. So we'll pick these up from verse 16. Once when we were going to that place of prayer, that's on the riverbed there, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days and finally Paul became so annoyed that he turned around to her and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus I command you to come out of her. At that moment the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains became loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And he then brought him out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. That passage starts with a, little, a young slave girl. We don't know where she was from, but we do know that she's now the mere property of somebody. There were many ways that could be done. She could have been bought over and purchased by, from a slave trader. Or she could have been taken in lieu of an unpaid debt, whether it be her own or somebody else's. Maybe her dad, maybe even her husband. She is no longer her own person and her identity has been stripped away. But on top of that, she has the extra burden of a demonic presence in her life. Pagan worship exposed you to all sorts of things which messed with your body and mind and opened you up to all sorts of spiritual bondage. Her supposed ability to predict the future was not a gift. 
it was a spirit within her that was actually creating a means for her to be exploited by her owners she is under physical oppression through slavery and is under emotional and spiritual oppression as well to minister to her Paul would have to meet her where she was at psychologically she had no identity anymore and her purpose for living other than serving her masters seemed quite limited and no doubt even pointless at times her need is most certainly alive and well here in Wangaratta as well as we think about that anxiety and depression is at an all-time high and thankfully it's becoming a much more spoken about thing in our community and around the country today we've had high profile politicians resign because of their battle with this and their openness with that there are stories out there locally of struggling farmers where they're at and and there are people even in our church who admirably fight their way through it and i will say this myself included at times and of course there are people who have exposed themselves to spiritual stuff as well that's not so good you know we see people who i mean drug use actually operates as a gateway for this sort of stuff but there's also that stuff that is seemingly harmless like all that new age stuff out there as well paul's ministry to her was entirely spiritual there were things jesus simply had to do before anything else could be done this woman need to be freed spiritually in order for the spirit of jesus to take hold and she would also be needing loads of patient ministry within the life of the church giving her time to slowly peel things away in order for her new identity in jesus to take hold when we're ministering to people in this sort of way we get a whole lot more done in prayer than we imagine and of course we read about our jailer here i talked about him on father's day so i won't go into too much in here but he's the big gruff guy who's seen a lot at worst he would have been a knockabout you know local one of those knockabout locals who didn't suffer fools and had a bit of biffo about him at best he would have been a retired soldier who only knew to take orders and dish out physical punishment there's no doubt he would have seen a lot of things both within the walls of his prison but perhaps even on the battleground he might have even had ptsd who knows he may have been one of those guys inflicting those things too there's every chance this guy would have actually taken a life or two to minister to a man like that paul had to come to him morally but not before jesus initiates an encounter of seismic proportions to get his attention in the course of my ministry life i've met many men who have had a bit of shaking in their life and they attribute that to god waking them up some are shaken by certain movies others have read books you know others have had a life life experience which has made them stop and ponder the important things of life one has lost a close friend through tragic circumstances and the conversation i'm having with that person now about faith is far deeper than what we were having five years ago in the wake of these seismic encounters people begin to think about what truly matters and their moral code is being challenged as a result paul is simply paul here simply waited out the quake and was on hand when the moral awakening began the message of his of his, the message he was able to share was really simple too there when you're dealing with people like that here it is true sustainable morality comes first by following the example of jesus christ it's a pretty easy one to present 
We have three good examples of ministry need here. We've got intellectual needs, people who need, to be, who need time to grapple with the, uh, the, uh, the, the facts that you want to give them about the faith. People who need time to discuss and work things over in their mind. There's a lot of people out there who, think, who, who process our faith that sort of way. We've got psychological, people who are going through all sorts of anxieties and stuff like that and actually need a spiritual encounter and actually need to be freed up of some things. There's people out there who need that sort of ministry as well. And then we've got those who need a moral compass in their life that Christianity is able to provide for them. All these were found in Paul's ordained mission field in Philippi and are very much alive and well in our context here in the city of Wangaratta. It's fair to say that the church of Philippi had a really interesting start. We've got a foreign businesswoman and her household who had been grappling with the issue of faith. We've got a slave girl who had no identity in the world but could be a new creation in Christ. And we have a prison guard who in many cases would be the last person a prisoner might see before they died and not a Jew to be found anywhere. Absolute novices in God here. Yet this church became a strong and, and, and generous one. Most scholars believe that it would have begun it with meetings at Lydia's home. And it clearly took all kinds to make up this body of believers. They came from all sorts of walks, worlds and backgrounds, but all could come together to receive the ministering touch of Jesus. There was no church down the road saying, the intellectuals go there. And another, all the, oh, you guys with the moral compass stuff, we don't want to talk about that here. We're, we're dealing with intellectual stuff here. You go down to that other church down there. It wasn't an option. It was one household. The intellectuals had space to deliberate without judgment or force. The anxious, the oppressed, the depressed, and even possessed had space to find their identity and freedom in Christ. And the roughest of men who had seen too much for his conscience to be affected anymore could come and learn the moral example of Jesus. In that one place, united in Christ, the young church in Philippi could find the healing they needed and the deep longings of their soul satisfied again. It's no wonder Paul wrote with great affection for this lot when he wrote Philippians from his Roman prison cell. Three ministry needs. And as we keep reading on, we see the various responses that Paul also encountered in his mission field. And again, we're going to see these in action today as well. The hallmark of those coming to repentance in Philippi is the trait of humility. And this is one of the responses that's the most desirable. We've got this rich woman, and she responded when her heart became soft, and she became a believer in Jesus. And then she went out of her way to immediately serve Paul and Silas by opening her home. We know in ancient culture, an open home means an open heart. We know in church today, an open home means an open heart. There was nothing aloof about her conversion experience, and there was nothing to hide here. We also see here the proud man running the jail came to a place where he would fall on his knees before his own prisoners with a bunch of other prisoners watching him do this. That's easily the best way to be with God. Humility gets you far in the kingdom of God. We know that, don't we? Matthew 23, Jesus said, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. 
Proverbs 3, which is echoed by James and Peter, says that God mocks proud mockers, but shows favor to the humble and the oppressed. There's plenty of people out there who need to be recipients of God's favor. Now, while this is the optimum response we want to see as a minister, we know that's not always the case, right? When I present the gospel to people out there, I don't always have these people come and fall at my feet and go, what must I do to be saved? As beautiful as I'd like it to be. We see other responses as we read deeper into chapter 17 here. The text takes us into Thessalonica. At this point, they've covered a total of 414 kilometers to get from Troas, where Paul had his vision, to the capital city of Macedonia in Thessalonica. We also see Paul get back to his regular evangelism method and the one he had culturally prepared Timothy for back in Lystra, and we talked about that last week. He starts in the synagogue because they had one, because they had one, and his message is always consistent. The Messiah in the Old Testament is the Jesus that I'm preaching to you today. We see a bunch of believers are gathering, but it's not all champagne and chocolates here. The Jews get nasty and make a huge scene that comes to a head in verse 5 of chapter 17. We'll pick it up here. But that the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others postponed, and then they let them go. The world has been turned upside down because of this lot. Thessalonica was a major center of commerce and a hugely cosmopolitan city. It was said to have about 200,000 people living there at the time. population of Rome at the time was 1 million. We read in verse 2 that Paul spent three Sabbaths straight in that synagogue. That's a three-week period of reasoning with the Jews and, and, and with those that observed at the time. And in that three-week interaction, we see that his work is yielding great results. But we also see that this is becoming a passionate group both for and against the claims of Christ. Down the road in Rome, at this point, all Jews had very recently been expelled by Emperor Claudius, and they were forced to go live somewhere, anywhere, away from Rome. They were actually kicked out of that. This is believed to have been linked to the number of Jews who converted to Christianity at Pentecost. And they took their faith back with them. The church in Rome wasn't founded by any apostle. But it was a largely Jewish-based church community that was believed to have started the day of Pentecost and taken back. Thessalonica was a free city where it was free to be governed by its own people. And this was a privilege that only a few cities in the Roman Empire ever attained. The Jews of Thessalonica liked their lifestyle. They didn't want to go the way of the Roman Jews. So they cooked up Paul's story by claiming his kingdom of God teaching undermines Caesar. See, there's a very real chance that people in our mission field will respond to the gospel with hostility. Not everyone wants to be challenged about their life or morals or values because it totally suits them to stay where they are despite the eternal consequences. 
And some will find the harshest way to communicate that that they can. Some of us live with close family that are like that. And I know it's hard to deal with at times, right? Others have experienced hostility in school or work on our stand of faith. It does come. Hostility comes. But it doesn't make our mission field any less ordained by God. We see in Thessalonica that that this hostile response only served to fuel the church. Only a few weeks later, when he a few years later, when he writes the letters to the Thessalonians, it appears that it's a largely Gentile church that forms there, and a really passionate and world-beating one at that. First Thessalonians one nine and ten acknowledges this. He says the Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what happened when we visited you. They tell you, they tell you how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Those that turned the world upside down arrived in Thessalonica. Thessalonica. And soon after, that, the world around them became very aware of their exploits. Despite the hostility they experienced, they pressed on with their faith and they lived it radically. People were renouncing their pagan ways and were serving Jesus only. That's a big deal. Today, loads of people in certain countries will say yes to Jesus but still keep a shrine of another God in their house. That's a big deal for people to actually say, I'm going to cut ties with my religious heritage of the past and say yes to Jesus only. I met a man from India a couple of years ago, came to our church in Sydney, and he had been, he was part of a rich aristocratic family and he'd been cut off because he forsook the gods of his ancestors and said yes to Jesus. It's very rare to find, but it's a big thing here. But this was a church marked by it. Hostility comes when we step out in our mission field. But our role is to be the messenger, not the saviour. That's his job. From the city lights of Thessalonica, we then head to the quiet neighbourhood of Berea. And our last human response for this morning, and we read that from Acts verse, it was going to start from verse 10, chapter 17, verse, uh, verse 10 onwards. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and explained the scripture, examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. The Bereans were less worried about their city comforts and clearly more interested in seeking out genuine truth. And we read here that the local Jews showed true diligence in, what they, in that they sought the scriptures to carefully weigh up Paul's claims. And unlike the Thessalonians who, who just met weekly, the Bereans were making a daily job of doing this and going through and searching their scrolls. The word examine here in the Greek is anacrino. And this means to scrutinize and determine a judgment. It was a legal term that Luke was using here. The final response this morning is what Luke calls nobility. And I'd say in a town like this, it will be the median response of those outside the church. There are extremes. Instant humility, where people hear one gospel message and are instantly convinced. I'd love to see heaps of that. And you see it lots in youth meetings. You know, teenagers respond to the gospel like that. It's instantaneous. It's beautiful. 
And it's deep-seated too. You get kids walk away going, I know Jesus made a difference in my life today. It's amazing. You get the other extreme of instant hostility where it is immediately dismissed out of hand. But then you get the more noble ones. The word noble means civil. And they were commended for being somewhat open to exploration of the claims set before them. Did they all come to the same conclusion after their deliberations? No, they didn't. But they did take the time to think it through somewhat. The largest group of people you'll meet in Wangaratta are noble people. So be prepared to have some interesting discussions when you engage with your mission field, knowing that you're going to have people of nobility out there. And you're going to need to do, like the intellectual side, we're going to need to do some hard yards in being a witness in our city. I'm going to leave it there for now. And I want to take a bit of time to ask a few questions. And if I could have a couple of gentlemen uh, just to help me get this table across, we're going to do some communion shortly too. So in your time, I'll let you do that. Let's think about our own mission fields. And ponder some questions here today. What people and needs make up my personal mission field? If you know what you're dealing with, you'll know how to minister. Are there some people you need to minister to at an intellectual level? If so, what might you need to know in order to speak into their lives? What things will need to be made clear? And what things need to be left to God in prayer for him to do the rest? Are there some who fit into that psychological area that I was talking about? Are there people in our lives with anxieties or pressures that weigh them down? We serve a Jesus who can make them truly free. But that takes loads of prayer, both for them and with them so that Jesus can remove things in their life that allows the Spirit to take up residence instead. Are there some who simply need to be spoken to in the moral sense? By that I mean pointing them to the example of the life of Jesus with a challenge to be more like that and less like ourself. What responses am I dealing with? While we all hope for the optimal outcome of humble hearts making instant decisions to follow Jesus... We know that they're not so easy to come by nowadays. Are we prepared to do the long haul of engaging with noble Bereans in our city who will give you time to speak and will require time to think and weigh it all up? And is our resolve strong enough to handle the rejection that comes with the odd hostile response? They will come. But know that the early church grew in hostile environments. And the believers in those settings found joy in the privilege they had to be able to share the gospel anyway. Brush yourself off from the hostile ones and believe for great things out of the people that we do that will give you the ear to listen. Whether it's instant or whether it's going to take some time, take joy in the fact that people are there ready to hear what you have to say anyway. As we come into communion... I've talked about what we're going to encounter out there. But as we ponder the cross, the question is, what have we been saved from? What means did Jesus go through in order to reach you? 
What people in your life spoke into your life that just triggered where you were at? Let's go back to that day where we said, it all makes sense. I'm going to give Jesus my life now. Let's remember our salvation. God had put you in somebody else's ordained mission field. And he gave them the wisdom and the wherewithal to speak into your life and the courage to do so. The same salvation that we're talking about God doing through our influence occurred because somebody else experienced the same thing in a previous generation. God went out of his way to ensure that you were reached and you were saved. Let's remember how that occurred. Let's remember, it wasn't coincidence. It wasn't coincidence that I walked into an elevator and met a Christian out of nowhere. It wasn't coincidence that I went to a church and watched the cross and the switchblade. It wasn't a coincidence the number of different things that occurred to finally get to that point where I said yes to Jesus. It's the same with you. It's not a coincidence that you're saved today. Jesus went out of his way to find you and to save you. And as we come around communion, let's say, thank you, God, for saving me. Thank you for going out of your way to find me where I was at. Thank you for ordaining a mission field for somebody else to reach me. It's an amazing thing when you think about it. I got saved because God did a massive, intricate plan in the process. So did you. Let's pray and we'll come around a time of communion and then we'll sing one more song to finish out.